Demotivation is not the opposite of motivation, according to Dr. Tara Peters, because different factors usually cause people to become motivated or demotivated. Dr. Peters has been researching demotivation for years through her academic work in organizational behavior, as well as direct consulting in the business world. She's also co-authored a book called The Demotivated Employee to help leaders address this problem that may be costing companies $500 billion annually. In this Hack the Process interview, Dr. Peters will tell us what leaders can do to help recognize and address demotivating patterns of behavior, how she balances her demanding academic and consulting careers, and why learning to work virtually now might put business consultants at an advantage. Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Tara Peters, and she is the co-author of a book called The Demotivated Employee. Tara, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, David. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and I'm motivated to have this conversation with you. <laughs> awesome. I am yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, I, I have worked in situations where I've worked with demotivated employees. I have been a demotivated employee, and I recognize that difference between demotivated and unmotivated. I'm really curious about what brought you to this work. You, you seem like a very motivated person every time that I hear you speak. Well, so, so it's interesting that you ask that question. So, so I'll answer the first part. Yes, I am highly motivated 95% of the time, but I have my days too, like all of us. But really, uh, the, the topic came to us, my co-op and I, Dr. Kathy Bush. So a uh, little context here. So Kathy and I worked together at Northwood University. We were colleagues in the graduate school. And so we were having interactions with students in our MBA program. And so we would hear them talking about situations going on at work and how People who were, you know, highly engaged and energized and go-getters that they had just fallen off the bandwagon and they were just really in a motivational slump. Sometimes we call this a motivational funk. And we were hearing enough of that from our students, but also just when we would have, you know, conversations with colleagues or talking to our family members. So we knew that something was going on. And so we wanted to better understand what was causing that. And what it led us to was the concept of demotivation. And sometimes when we talk to people, they say, well, okay, isn't that just the opposite of motivation? We say, no, not exactly. In part, because demotivation and motivation are driven by different factors. And another thing that we also argue is that we think that really, this is what led us to really go ahead and write the book in addition to this conversation was that we think that we've been asking the wrong question. It's not how do you motivate people? It's how do you stop demotivating them? Because they're, they're, they're like you and I, David, right? They came to their work. They were excited. They wanted to join the organization, right? They were gung-ho. And then something happened. And so that something happened is really this piece around demotivation that we were trying to better understand. That's really interesting because I, what I love about the framing of that is that it doesn't accept the idea that there's a neutral. The idea is that you are either motivating or you are demotivating, but there isn't this neutral state. Yeah. So we we think about it in the in the 
in terms of when an individual actually comes to work, there is a level of motivation. We're not we're not in a in a neutral place. We're actually typically engaged, looking forward to the work that we are going to be doing and actually anticipating how we can contribute and actually add value. And so we kind of started with that premise that that's where employees actually are. There may be a group of employees who are kind of in a state of, you know, basically straddling the fence between those two domains. And I think one of the ways that I would kind of respond to that is motivation does move, right? It's not a static uh, state of being that you and I have, but we do believe that clearly there's a space where people are motivated to do the work or moving in a direction that is going to ultimately lead to them being demotivated, no longer engaged, no longer committed to the work. And so acknowledging that we think is really important in part to help leaders because they have an impact on that. Right. And I'm glad you bring this back to leaders because it feels to me like this is a challenge for leadership. They're the ones who have that opportunity. They're not the only factor that can demotivate employees, I'm sure, but they can play a large role in that. They they absolutely do. And so in the in the book, we talk about five sources. And so the first one is individual differences. A, a quick way to think about this is that you and I have different personalities, right? We have different levels of competence. We have different attitudes. Those are those are unique to you and I as individuals. And even though we own those things, managers can impact us by how they actually engage us, how they position us in terms of roles. So if I'm someone who's really likes to you know work independently and, and do projects and have time to think by myself, and that's where my interactions are best. If if I'm suddenly thrust into a role that requires more interaction, engagement, team building, that kind of thing, my motivation could be impacted. And so we want leaders to attend to that. And so we say leaders, in addition to that one, you can you can deal with stress, right? That's another source conflict with co-workers. Also, we talk about how leaders actually lead inside of organizations. And so we're really trying to help leaders to think about, okay, how am I actually contributing in terms of my behaviors, but also causing leaders to pay attention to culture, because that also has an impact on employee demotivation. Right. And those are all factors that they can have some input into and they can have some involvement in. Although sometimes there's a sense of detachment where the leader doesn't really feel that they have access to that aspect of the employee's work. And that's kind of where we challenge leaders a little bit in this book. And we start from the premise of we don't believe that leaders, we aren't cynical, right? So we don't believe that leaders. Big surprise there. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> Yeah, so we don't, we don't, we are not cynical and, and we don't believe that, you know, leaders wake up in the morning brushing their teeth saying, you know what, let me see how I can stick it to David, you know, today. <laughs> so we don't, we don't, we don't believe that. We believe sometimes that it happens out of being unintentional. It was an accidental mistake that the leader made. They weren't really cognizant of the fact of that potential impact. And we also know too that sometimes leaders just are not equipped with the tools that they need. And so what they do is their compromise is kind of what you allude to. I'm going to detach myself because I'm really not well prepared. I don't have the skill set or the knowledge to deal with that situation. So I'm not going to engage with it. And so we say to leaders, we're, we're going to help you to acquire those skills and to develop behaviors that will allow you to take on these sources of demotivation that are impacting your employees. And we also urge them in terms of creating the business case around why you want to do this, why this is important to your organization. And I'm sure you help them in framing that business case as well, because, of course, they can't devote the time and the resources to doing this unless there's a clear understanding that it's worth budgeting. 
Absolutely. So one of the things that, that we talk about in the book, most people are familiar with Gallup. They're well known in many circles because of their polling, but they've also been doing this really cool uh, engagement survey for, for 20 years or so. And they basically ask 12 questions. And what they have found over their research is that there is a $500 billion impact. So that's a half trillion dollars every single year that's impacting business in terms of lost productivity, in terms of employee turnover. And so that has an impact on the organization's bottom line. And so when you begin to talk about things in that context that it's actually costing us, that becomes really important because another piece of that research, and this number has been really persistent over time, even though there's been a little bit of improvement here recently, that about 70% of, of U.S. employees are disengaged at work. Some are actively disengaged, right? These are people that are, you know, lying on expense reports, right? Engaged in, you know, deviant behavior. And then the biggest portion of those disengaged are those folks that are just checked out. They're sleepwalking through the day, but they are on your payroll. You pay those people every single day. And if I told you that seven out of 10 of your employees were disengaged at work, you would say, whoa, 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 <laughs> right? We need to have a conversation. And so that's why we make the business case that that's why attending to demotivation is important because if people are demotivated, it is likely that they are also disengaged. And so helping leaders to say, okay, I should probably spend some time looking at this to figure out what my organization can do and more specifically what I as a leader can do. Now, I'm intrigued by that number because it actually half a trillion dollars sounds conservative for, for the, the amount of disengagement that I think is not unusual in the workplace. And what I wonder about is whether this is something that's per employee or if this a percentage of their time and people tend to move in and out of different degrees of engagement over the course of a day or over the course of a year. So we know that an employee engagement like demotivation is not static. So there can be adjustments. But what Gallup is reporting here is looking at a percentage of the workforce and saying and then using that number to say, OK, what's the estimated financial impact of that? That's specifically how they're looking at it in aggregate. I think from an organizational level, what it would say to you is this would lead to a subsequent conversation where you begin to look at data in your own organization to say, okay, what does our employee turnover rate look like? And we know that with HR modeling, there's a specific cost that is attributed to employee turnover. And so then that would cause us as an organization to say, okay, what would be the impact if our current turnover rate is 20%, what would happen if that became 15%? What would happen if that became 10%? And so then you begin to help organizations to think about in a tangible way, if I can reduce my cost, then I can improve my overall profitability. And oh, by the way, let's think about what this means for customer satisfaction. I mean, if you think about employees that are disengaged, employees that are demotivated work, they're probably not the best people in terms of interfacing with your customers. They're probably not serving them as well as you would like. And so, again, thinking through that as an organization and then as a leader, I think is, is really important because we've all worked with people that we know have really lost their mojo in terms of how they're feeling about their work. And so investing the time and the effort to do that is consequential, we believe. I can absolutely understand that. And I think a challenging thing for leaders when they're presented with such large aggregated numbers that are generalized across various industries, as I would imagine leadership would get kind of defensive about numbers like that and saying, not my employees, they're not that disengaged. 
Well, so, so it's, so it's interesting. You know, what I always say to people is, um, and the part of this is because my background is in business, is I say, let's go take a look at your organizational data and let's see what the data tells us. It helps to mitigate some of the defensiveness. It's not to say that it still won't be present, but looking at data and then approaching it from the vantage point of we're not here to point out deficiencies or to blame people. But we're really here to create a better organization. We're really here to help employees. We're really here to better serve our customers. And so many times, and I know you have this background in engineering and in process improvement, right? Knowing that helping people to say we're trying to get better and to make that commitment can be helpful in terms of how you try to frame and to position why the organization should take this on because there's a benefit that we can actually accrue. And then you, you can ask people too, well, you know, what's the consequence of, of not doing something? And then helping people to also think through that because sometimes change can be more costly. Not changing can be more costly than the change that's required of us. It certainly can. And positioning it in terms of, you know, the, the cost benefit of doing nothing versus the potential benefits that could accrue from doing something positive in that direction. I think that's a good way to position something like this for leadership to help them see the, the value of taking some action. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that we try to do, particularly from a leadership development perspective, is to really help leaders to work on themselves. And so one of the things that we do in the book, and it's based on some work that we've done on our MBA program, is coming up with leadership development plan. And so you're setting goals, you're identifying what are the resources that you're needing, the behaviors that need to be changed, what's the impact of changing those behaviors, and then what kind of accountability and support do you need in place? And then how do we clearly measure what winning looks like? What does success look like? And so helping people to, to do that we found to be very beneficial to the individual and also the organization in terms of the growth in the leader. Yeah, I'm intrigued by that. How do you establish a baseline that's going to demonstrate the value of the progress? So one of the things that you could think about is a lot of times what we'll do in business is that we'll identify leadership competencies. So these are behaviors that we want leaders to adopt. And so one of these might be the ability to build collaborative relationships. And then what you would do is then you would sit down and you would set a target around what that would look like. And, you know, there's a variety of ways that you could do that. One of the ways that you could do that is you put teams together and then as a part of the debrief process around the teams is that there is a, a feedback mechanism that is put in place. And then that way you're gathering data around how the leader actually behaved in that particular scenario. That becomes an opportunity for coaching and development for the leader. And so that's one way that you can actually create targets and to be able to measure meaningful progress. There are other tools that, that organizations use as well. I mean, you've seen where there's been 360 degree review processes. Some that Those things work well when they're deployed effectively, but there are a variety of ways that you can actually get at setting some clear targets and then holding not only the leader accountable, but actually providing support so that they can be successful. I mean, we're doing this so that the leader can win and then ultimately the organization can be successful. So, so, so those are some of the things that we've done and some of the tools that we've seen deployed inside of organizations. 
Interesting. And I, I, I think you and Dr. Bush are working together as the leadership doctors going in and doing consulting with companies as well, right? We actually are. And so our consulting business really is intended to create great workplaces. And so we know that that is really driven by the leaders in the organization. And so we've really tried to approach it in a really three different ways. And so one of the ways that we do that in our consulting work is with executive coaching. And so that's a great way for a leader to work on their own skill development. And it could be for a current role or maybe a a subsequent role that they are actually being developed for. That could be really helpful. We also do more expansive development around teams. And so there's particular models out there like Patrick Lencioni has a model out there about the five dysfunctions of teams. And so there's an assessment. And we always, when we can, we try to start with the senior leadership team when we're looking at development because As we all know, it all starts at the top, and that is so true. And so if we can have a functional, highly effective, collaborative senior leadership team, then we can cascade that down throughout the organization. So um, we focus in on leadership development, both from a team perspective, and typically we look for those to be longer-term engagements because philosophically, we believe that you can do a one-day workshop and get some benefit, but if you really want long-term development and growth, you've got to make a longer term commitment to development because leadership has to be practiced. You know, you have to have a set of experiences. You have to talk about it. You have to get some feedback. You got to, you know, learn from your actual application and did that work and did it not. And so it takes time. And so we really try to build that into the length of the programs that we offer. And then we come to people, and we, we talk about more customized solutions because maybe they got a new, unique situation that they are working through. So for like example, right now we're doing some consulting consulting around crafting a women in leadership program for a technology company. And so the scope of the work varies, but really at the end of the day, we're trying to help companies to create great workplaces. That's interesting. So it sounds like this extends into diversity and inclusion work as well. Oh, absolutely. And of course, that is a really hot area of discussion right now that organizations are tackling. Let's hope it's not just for right now. (laughs) Right. I was going to say that. Exactly. I mean, it has to be a a long-term view in terms of diversity and inclusion. And so what's interesting in in this time is that there is really this push for organizations, to your point, not just to give it lip service, but to be really tangible in terms of their efforts. And then not just looking for what we're going to do right now, but what is the longer term commitment to deal with issues of racism and systematic racism, issues of gender inequity. We just had, of course, the Supreme Court ruling for the LGBTQ community. What does that mean in terms of how diversity inclusion efforts are now even more supported in the workplace? Certainly LGBTQ community now has a new level of protection. And so again, this is causing organizations to really think about how they're actually being inclusive in terms of the work that's being done. And then also, too, recognizing that if we have gaps, being honest about that and then saying, first of all, acknowledging that we have a that we have an issue, we have a problem, Scotty, and then saying, okay, here are the things that we are going to do and including employees in that process, which is so, so important. And so, you know, I hope to look back on 2020 because it's been a humdinger, (laughs) but but to see it really as a watershed moment in terms of what we see in organizations around diversity and inclusion and even more broadly in society because of this moment in time. 
I think that's the best possible way to frame all of this. It's a humdinger, but there are some opportunities that are opening up. <laughs> right, right. For sure. For sure. I always try to see the glasses half full. Some days that's harder than others. So yeah. <laughs> some days. <laughs> yeah. These engagements with executive coaching, for example, it sounds to me like you do target longer term engagements. And I'm curious how they get structured within the context of companies, because sometimes executives go out and find leadership coaches who can help them independent of their work. And sometimes it's something that's integrated into the workplace. Do you balance between those two? So what we do is that we come up with a coaching plan that meets the needs of the individual. And so we really try to be targeted in that effort. And so structurally, typically what happens is that the coaching sections typically live independent of what is going on in terms of a broader, say, leadership development for a team process. It doesn't mean that that doesn't get impacted because the leader is a part of the team, but their individual growth, we're looking at that independent of that. So the coaching, because some of the things that the individual is working on may not be specific to the team that they're working on or that they're a part of. And so we've been able, again, dependent upon the situation, to actually craft that independent of the work that we might be doing with the team. To kind of talk a little bit about what this might look like in terms of a team structure, and I kind of alluded to this earlier that we believe it really takes time for people to learn and to grow and develop. And so I'll, I'll use kind of this model because we've used it a lot and it's indicative of kind of how we think about growing people. So we would look at, say, an engagement that would happen over, say, a, a three to six month period. And what we would do is we would meet with the leadership team. And let's say in the first meeting, it's really, you know, laying the groundwork, setting expectations, creating the actual sub team. So typically, depending upon the team, if we had a team of 10 that we were actually working with, we would create two smaller groups of that that would be doing some individual teamwork together. But the point being, we bring them together we would have, for example, a topic that we were dealing with. And so the topic might be organizational culture. And so we'd read an article. We might have a guest speaker come in. And that session would be a couple of hours. And then we would send the leaders out with an activity or some type of engagement that allowed them to apply what they'd actually learned. And then we'd bring them back in two weeks. We would talk through. We would debrief that activity, that engagement that they had. They would get some feedback. And then we'd move on to the next topic that we had scheduled. And so we use this scaffolding approach or our idea of, of very topics that are integrated and connected to one another so that we're actually happy, helping leaders to grow and to deal with issues inside of their organization that at the end of that engagement, we're going to have a better team and we're going to have better individuals. And so that's really how we approach that process. And it's based in part around, there's a lot of research around when people can actually apply their learning and practice, then they're able to internalize it. They learn what works, <laughs> they learn what doesn't work, and then they now have a set of skills that they can actually deploy. And so really, we know that that is important. The other thing that we think about, too, is because we have a group of people that are working together, they're actually supporting each other. They're actually vested in one another. And so that collegiality and support also becomes really important as well. I could see that. You mentioned specifically there was like a two-week interval between coaching sessions, and that uh, that allows not only for that interval learning that, that allows the repetition and the reabsorption of, of ideas, but also it offers your company the opportunity to scale the work you're doing so you don't have to embed yourself with one client for six months in order to get that six-month benefit. 
Absolutely. And one of the things I'll say with you as well that we are exploring also to your point to be able to scale is, you know, COVID has really necessitated the need to be able to go into a virtual space to deliver training and development. And so it has really opened up a new world to us that we are exploring right now in terms of our consulting business. We're actually doing some strategic planning right now around that because we've done some work, really single day sessions that we've been doing in this virtual space. And we realize that there is going to continue to be a need for organizations to do training and development virtually. And so we have a model that we know that we can use with teams that, and again, to your point about being able to scale, being in that session on a Zoom call for two hours, you take a break, then you can be with another company in another part of the world doing a two-hour you know, Zoom collaboration. And so now you have even more flexibility in terms of being able to scale because you're not traveling, et cetera. So it gives you more opportunities there to actually take on project work. So that will definitely be a part of the work that we continue to do. And Kathy and I have been in that space being in higher ed. We've been doing online education I've been in that space for 20 years and it started in K to 12 education, but certainly in higher ed, we've been doing it for the better part of 15 years. So we're able to leverage that experience and to be able to provide value. I am so glad to hear that. I, I've been shouting from the rooftops about the value of remote learning and, and remote coaching, and in particular in the coaching community, where people have not had a lot of experience with exercises that are usually done in a room with index cards on a, on a pieces of paper and clay that you model physically in, in physical locations. But there's so much advantage, so much benefit to the ability to work remotely and to, to spread the knowledge around. And honestly, I think that if you work to remote tools, you are engaging people more in different ways and you're forcing them to open up their lines of communication in ways that they never would have thought of before. I agree with you 100% on that uh, my point. And you're also causing people to, to be more adaptable in terms of imagining how they might do their work. And so that, to me, could be one of the biggest benefits that comes to organizations is that they begin to reimagine what work looks like and how it gets done. Because I won't speak for you, but I'll speak for myself. I worked inside of organizations and managers said, there's no way people can work from home and be productive and do all the things that we need to do. And there's no way that we can collaborate and build teams. And guess what? We've been doing it now for the better part of three months. And guess what? People are tended to be more productive. People have made adjustments in terms of teams and engagement, and we can still be collegial and collaborate. And guess what? There's really cool tools out there like Microsoft Teams that can help us uh, to do that uh, kind of work. Who knew that we could actually, uh, you know, leverage technology in meaningful kinds of ways. And so in my opinion, those are the organizations and, and those are the individuals who are going to be able to win as we move forward, because a new expectation has been set for how we might do things. And so those who can provide services and products that meet that market need will be in a position to, to be successful. And I think you're, you're targeting things very well when you're focusing on the leadership around this, because leadership having an understanding of the value of that opportunity, it's critical to this being accepted, particularly when you get to the middle management layer, because I'm guessing that middle management is one of the places where the demotivating factors tend to creep into companies. What we've really found is that 
it's at all levels in the organization. It really is tied to the leader and his or her behaviors. And let me give you an example of that. So one of the things that Kathy and I did in the book is we love storytelling. We think stories are a great way to engage people, for them to imagine themselves in a particular situation and having some familiarity. And so we took from our own set of experiences and even looking at the research, and it really does run the gamut. We tell stories of people who were in senior leadership positions who were not recognizing the stressors that they were placing upon their employees and how that lack of acknowledgement and lack of support eventually caused a really talented individual to actually leave the organization after a very, very short period of time. We talk about a story of a young hotel associate who has just started a new job on the front line serving hotel guests. And she's been introduced to a new software platform and, and she's not really sure about it. And things come up after her initial training period is over with and her boss is not supporting her and isn't there to answer questions questions. And so, you know, she begins to become overwhelmed. And as a result says, you know what, I, I'm just not going to be able to do this. I don't have the skill set. And so we see it at all levels. And we actually speak to that in our book, which is why we think that leadership development really has to happen at all levels of the organization. Because if you think about people who are just entering into the profession, and I'll, I'll use my son as an illustration of this, you know, when you have people coming into your organization who are just starting their career, that experience that they have with that with that first manager really can shape their expectation of the workplace and, and what managing looks like and, and what that interaction can create in terms of the employee looking forward to coming to work or actually saying, whew, can't wait till this one is done. Uh, and I am, you know, on to the next gig. So, so really it's, it's consequential at all levels in the organization. Now, the senior leaders have an additional responsibility. Absolutely. Because people look up in the organization to see what senior leaders do. And what you'll have is the mimicking of that behavior at lower levels in the organization. Senior leaders will also create what I like to call mini-me's. So people look at senior leadership and what they do and how they interact and how they behave. And then other people see that and then they, again, say, oh, I need to act like that. That's what I should do because that's what the CEO does or that's what the CFO does. And so I do believe that there's an additional burden in terms of responsibility for senior leaders. But but this issue really is at all levels. Yeah, I can see that. And I, I like the way that you frame that as well. It reminds me of actually another of Gallup's tools, the Clifton's the Strengths Finders tools that they use, where they focus on all of the like the 34 different strengths that you can adopt in your work and focusing on developing those strengths to the point of, of spectacular adoption, as opposed to trying to build on weaknesses, which can just raise you up to the level of mediocrity. I think it's a great point. And, you know, we spend a lot of time helping people on the OFIs, right? Those opportunities for improvement. And if we reverse that energy to your point and focus on people's strengths, right? And where they could, where they really add value and helping that to grow exponentially, what could be the outcome of that? And so I also think it's too, it's, it's reinforcing for people when we can, you know, strengthen something that we are you know, really good at because it just becomes invigorating for us. And I used to play sports. I don't anymore age in my left knee uh, kind of for 
sent me to retirement. But I can remember, you know, wanting to go to practice, you know, for volleyball example, because I knew by, you know, spending that time in the gym that I was going to get better. I was already a good athlete, but I knew that I could get better. Or by running that extra sprint, you know, in track practice, I was going to be better conditioned and I could shave, you know, a second off of my time. And so I will affirm that how valuable that can really be for employees. So I'd love to talk with you a little bit about the structure of the business that you're running right now with Dr. Bush. You're simultaneously working as an academic dean at Northwood University, and I believe she also is working in academia, and you're simultaneously writing a book together and running a business together, doing consulting. (laughs) So much to keep track of. How do you structure all of this? Yeah, so that's a great question. So, you know, one of the things that I will say is that because my background and subject matter expertise is in org behavior and leadership, this is really right in my wheelhouse. House. And so I work for an institution that actually supports research. And so this has been a great opportunity for me to pursue my research interest in a way that allows me to not only to contribute to the to the world and as an academic to the literature, but also to the work that I'm doing, because it informs how I think about my engagement with students. Uh, It informs how I actually design courses because I'm staying current and relevant in terms of the discipline and actually what's going on. So there's really a lot of value add. The other thing too is that by having, you know, employees, the faculty administration that are out in the broader context, in industry, having conversations, presenting their subject matter expertise, it actually builds the profile um, of the institution because you now have subject matter experts who are you know, sharing their insight, they're sharing their research. And so really there's a benefit that accrues to the institution as well. And then the final thing I'll say is that Northwood University has always had a philosophy of having a practitioner's view. So we're in business, so that makes sense. That's where the rubber meets the road. You got to be able to go out and execute and deliver. And so we've really looked for individuals who were in industry, who were actually practicing what they were teaching, because we knew that that would be of great value to our students. And so it's really been a way to complement the work that I do with the institution. It also means that I work weekends and late nights, but I have just been one of these people that, you know, when I love to do something, it doesn't feel like I'm working. It feels like I'm playing in a sandbox. And so that's what I feel like I'm doing. I actually in a sandbox playing, creating, because I actually really love the work that I'm doing. That's interesting. A lot of people talk about work-life balance. And sometimes I think there's a a misunderstanding about that. And I'm I'm curious how your thought is about the work-life balance issues. How I think about work-life balance is that I think that it's different for everyone. And that a part of that depends upon their stage in life. I think it depends upon what their values are and what their needs are. But I have been a person that when I work hard, I work really, really hard. But then I also play really, really hard, too. So just like that person who who will put in the long hours, I also go and take three week vacations <laughs> and go travel to somewhere you know, abroad. And so, you know, it's nothing for me. I, I do a trip every August. And so I'll spend a week or, or 10 days days, somewhere, you name it. Last year, you know, I I spent some time in Ghana. I had never been there. And so, and then I always take 10 days with my sweetheart and we're in Mombasa. And so that's for me, that's my balance is to play hard, 
but also work really hard. And so for me, that's been a really good way to keep myself not overwhelmed, but really in a, in a good place. The other thing that I do as well is I love to exercise. And so I do that. I try to, you know, eat right. So I think it's a combination of things that we do that actually help us to maintain that work-life balance. But I've also learned to say no. <laughs> and so that is very helpful as well, because sometimes our work-life balance gets out of sorts because we have not learned to say no. But I, I learned this a while ago about saying no allows me to say yes to the things that are really important to me and that are consistent with what I'm trying to do. And so before I say yes to something, that's a question that I ask myself. And if it's not, then I'm okay with, with saying no. And it's funny because two-year-olds understand this, right? <laughs> they know how to say no, but something happens to us as we get older and we think we have to say yes all the time. But I, I do think it's important to set some boundaries for sure. It absolutely is. I'm interested in finding out more about how you built the business that you've got running simultaneously, This uh, the, the Leadership Doctors because it, it's not an obvious thing how you structure a business and create a consultancy and then go out and find clients and then make it sustainable. What was your approach to that? Yeah. So let me give, give a little bit of context. So Kathy and I are, are really in the early stages of building the business. We've got two clients right now that we are working with. We just started the business in March of 2020. Yeah. So the business is really new. We have both done consulting work on our own. So I have a company, Peters Consulting Group. She has a Bush LLC. So we've done our work on our own um, over the years independently. But when we wrote the book, we decided that we were going to put our own consulting businesses on hold and really focus in on building our business together as the leadership doctors with the book being the primary motivation for that. So this is why I was saying earlier that we're actually engaged in a strategic planning process for the business for us to really decide what it is that we want to do in terms of how we're actually going to pursue clients and actually how we're actually actually going to offer those services. And so, but there were some natural things for us that just made sense because of the work that we had already done in terms of consulting. And so really that gave us the initial structure for the business. So for example, executive coaching was an obvious space for us to play in. Leadership team development was an obvious place for us to play in, in terms of space. And then customized solutions was an obvious space for us to be in. The other part of that that we're talking about right now is the viability of speaking engagements. And we have not added that yet to the business, but we have both done professional speaking. I've done a TED Talk. Kathy is looking to do one of those later in the year. Obviously, COVID has really changed the dynamics on that, but that's really how we're thinking about the business and we're trying to be strategic in terms of what we decide to do and what we're not going to do. And then the other part of the business is the obvious play, I think, around the book and again, selling and using that as a way to have engagements and to create a, a profile for ourselves. But Really, that's what, what we've used as the model in terms of how we are going to uh, approach the business. And then to, to kind of make this final point, we had imagined ourselves being in a face-to-face -face interaction pre-COVID. And so what we are doing is reimagining the business in terms of not just the current environment, but also what does it mean post-COVID and really longer term for how we approach business? Because I don't believe that, that we will return to the old normal. There will be a new normal or the next normal, and then there'll be a next normal. And then positioning ourselves for that, we think is important. 
And really, there always is. It's just this is making it so explicit. I, I would agree with that 100%. And so it's really, you know, redefine, you know, what that means for being adaptable and responsive to, to change. And in this case, a shock. <laughs> so... <laughs> So you two are both coming at this from from basically having your own independent consultancies and now looking at a joint consultancy without stopping the independent consultancies as well. Right. But honestly, I mean, you only you only have so much bandwidth. And so we have just really our independent consulting. If something drops in our lap, yes, but we are not actively pursuing our consulting businesses independently. All of our energy and effort is for the leadership doctors. That makes perfect sense. Again, it comes to the question about not only how do you grow something, but then how do you scale it? Because then you're limited by the fact that there are just the two of you. Absolutely. The good thing with this is that we have, because we've been in academia, we have other academics who are also in consulting spaces. And so there are things that if we need uh, support that we can actually bring in some other consulting colleagues to support us on projects. So that will help us to scale. We don't have that situation yet, but it'll be a good problem to have uh, if and when it uh, manifests itself, we'll be ready to take it on. But we have thought about that. And so we do. We have a, a peer group that we believe that we could leverage to help us in that effort. And also to your point, I mean, you know, one of the things that we've done is with people being at home so much right now, we've had access to experts that would normally be traveling and doing other kinds of things. So Patrick Lencioni has created a, a consultancy alliance group that we've actually joined. And so it's about 2,700 members. And so people are just sharing best practices and ideas. And so again, that could we could eventually, if we saw the need to tap into that network as well, because really there's a vast array of consultants who are in our space that we could use as resources as well if we found ourselves needing to scale. Now that's an interesting point. So it sounds like you two are in a, it's sort of a mastermind group. That could be kind of how you describe it, but it came about because there was obvious this, obviously this need because consulting business, like so many other businesses, are really turned upside down when the pandemic happened because there was a particular way to do business. And it likely involved a face-to-face kind of interaction, which has gone away and is not yet on the table to any extent. And so it was a way to say, okay, how can we help consultants to bring value to their clients in this new landscape that we find ourselves in? And so Kathy and I believe if you're the smartest person in the room, you need to get into another room. And so <laughs> so we believe that there, is, there are so many knowledgeable people who are out there. And so we thought it would be great for us to tap into that network, learn from other people what they were doing and not trying to reinvent the wheel and not trying to figure out everything for ourselves. And so for us, it's been a really great way for us to collaborate with others who are in the same space and to use that networking, if you will, to build our business as well. That sounds like a great opportunity because there are so many different vectors that these things can go in and all of these different people trying different things. The new model for this type of work hasn't been invented yet, but we're inventing it dynamically as we go. I would agree with that. We we are building the plane and trying to fly it simultaneously. <laughs> so that's kind of that's kind of what what it feels like, you know, right now. But you know, it's it's one of those things. It I think it's all perspective. And so I see it as an opportunity to reimagine the business and, and what we would do and to be able to help organizations in that process because organizations are having to reimagine their work. And what they are doing. And again, it, you know, as we were talking earlier around these new 
variables that are not really new, but that have come more to the fore, as we were talking about around diversity and inclusion, that organizations are going to not just grapple with in the near term, but in the longer term. And so it, it's a, from my vantage point, I think it's a great time to be a consultant who's in the space around org behavior and leadership, because there's definitely a need for all size businesses right now. Honestly, I think you could be in a in a better position than a lot of people because you're having the opportunity to build a new structure in this new environment without a lot of the legacy baggage. I would agree with that. And it makes you open to the prospect of what you might do because you're not already, to your point, wedded to some idea or way of doing business that now you're trying to undo uh, in terms of maybe structures that you might have already built to support that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how this goes. And it sounds like you you and Dr. Bush have a good working relationship as well. You you were able to write a book together, for example, and that's a huge challenge. It is. I'm going to tell you, you know, Kathy and I, we have a fantastic relationship. We have known each other since 2008. And uh, we met at an assessment conference and we just hit it off. There are just some people you meet, you know, you just have a you have a connection. And we built upon that relationship throughout our time at Northwood. And then when Kathy moved on to another business venture in 2015, we continue to stay connected. We would touch bases every six months or so because she has two boys that are about the same age as my son. And so we always had some catch up on what the kiddos were up to. And so. So we just genuinely like each other. We love and care about each other. And so we had said when Kathy made her transition that we were going to do something together. We thought at that time we might publish a journal article together. But as we kind of got more serious about it, we landed on the fact that we actually wanted to write a book together. And so I had done I had my first bite at the apple in terms of writing on an anthology book project. So essentially, I had a colleague that I worked with at Northwood. Dr. Dorsey was writing a book. It was an anthology project. So that's I was going to write a chapter in her book. And so that gave me a window into the book writing process without taking on all the responsibility that comes with being a sole author. And so... Then when Kathy and I began to talk, I said, you know what, I've had a really good experience. We talked about writing a book. And so we agreed that that's what we were going to do. And so, again, we had had the experiences at Northwood. And so we knew that demotivation was a space that we could add value that had not really been researched. I mean, we spend lots of time together. I mean, we meet every day. We have a business meeting that we chat every day to to talk through things. And so to your point, you really have to like That person um, to spend that amount of time together with each other. But we do. We just we have that kind of relationship and rapport and our families get along. And so it's been great. I, I tease my son. I say, this is your Auntie Kathy. So so we do. We just have a great working relationship, again, a personal relationship and care one for another. So it, it does. It really does make a difference in our work. So the work you do together and for the writing that you were doing, have you been physically co-located or have you been working using remote tools for the process? We worked remotely. So Kathy's in Florida and I am in Texas. And so it was really a divide and conquer kind of kind of project. So we agreed on the topics that we were going to explore in the book. And then I would write a chapter, Kathy would write another chapter. We would share, we would edit each other's work, go back and make comments. And then that's what we did for the better part of a year to actually get the work done. And then we went to a publisher and said, okay, we think we have a manuscript that we're ready to 
to publish, we use that. We work with Advantage uh, and Forbes Books for the work. And of course, <laughs> publishers say, no, you're not. And so we had some work to do there, which wasn't unexpected. And so we spent about three months getting that work done. And then again, began that all whole final editing process and then signed off on the book with the publisher in December of 2019. This actual project had started in late 2018. So just kind of giving you a sense of the timing of the the project and and what all it entailed and to get it done. And that was the earnest work began really in 2018, the later part of the year. But we had been having conversations up until that point in time around outlines and topics and, you know, because we're academics. So we had to dig into the research and, you know, really understand and and bring that to the table. But nobody wanted to read a journal article. So we had to, you know, scale that back and not be too overly academic, if you will, because that was not our audience that we were targeting. Yeah, it's a very different type of writing when you're writing for a more general business audience. Absolutely. So so we had to adopt that stance as well in terms of our writing. But it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a lot of work. And I would say that to anybody. Writing a book is a lot of work, but it is one of the most rewarding things that I have done professionally. And I'm super proud of us for getting that milestone achieved. And so it, it feels like it not feels like it is. It's a really great accomplishment for us. So I'm super excited. It is a huge accomplishment. And I'm, 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 I'm always impressed with people who have been able to get through that. And I'm curious, you know, working remote, working in just separate spaces, working across geography and time, what kind of tool set were you using to make that possible, if you don't mind? So really, I mean, we were we were really old school. I mean, we were using Microsoft Word. Um, I've, I've written papers using Google Docs and those kinds of things. But for us, utilizing Microsoft Word worked fine. We could use the, the editing feature. We could see each other's changes. We could insert comments. And really, that's what we used for collaboration. And then because it was just the two of us, we would hop on a call. And, and have a conversation and, and talk through things or we would do Zoom meetings and have a video conference about something. And so if we both needed to look at something together, we would utilize Zoom as a platform to be able to do that. So really, it was just taking advantage of technology as it made sense and then really being low tech if you will, in terms of some of the other resources that we were making use of. Again, that was facilitated in part because there were two of us. When I was doing a a journal article and there were three of us, we were utilizing Google Docs. It has some flexibility there. You can edit in real time. People can see those changes. And so and you can share and those kinds of things. So I've used those kind of collaboration tools. But for this project, again, we were able to um, really use things that I would call really more low tech in terms of collaborating, but they, they work just fine. Just enough technology to get the job done. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I, I, you know, sometimes the, you know, keep it simple is the way to do it. So it certainly worked for us. It certainly has. I, I think there are a lot of people out here who are going to be, be interested in reading about this and finding out more about the work you've been doing with your consultancy as well. Where can I send people to find out more about you? So you can send them to our website, theleadershipdoctors.com. And on our website, of course, you'll find the book. And and we would love for you to purchase a copy of the book and then leave a review on Amazon. You can also see we started a series called Lessons from Leaders that is also on our website. And what we've done is we sat down with thought leaders and senior execs in organizations to talk to them about their leadership journey, 
how they're leading their teams and their operations during the pandemic. We've asked them questions around career advice. And so the interviews are about 15 to 20 minutes. Some are a little longer, but that's the average. And so we have that available really as a resource to help people to think about their own leadership journey and what they can do to position themselves. As you know, Kathy and I, we love to write. And so we have written articles that have been published on, for example, CEO World or on Medium, which is Twitter's company. So we've been doing that work as well. And so uh, you can go there and you can, uh, our articles that have been published on websites uh, with publishers, but also we have written blogs. And so we're just sharing our insights and perspectives that we think are relevant to this time. And so we have lots of resources. We have videos where we talk a little bit about the book as well and what we like to call bite-sized pieces. Uh, So really we have quite a few resources that are on the website that We encourage people to go uh, and to check out. And then if they're interested in working with us, there is a a link, a contact us. And then Kathy and I would love to chat with you uh, to see how we might be able to meet your needs. That's excellent. There's so much to double click on. I know there's going to be a lot for people to dig into. And I'm going to put links in the show notes as well. So people will be able to find those things. That's perfect. Thank you, David. That'll be awesome. Thank you so much. And Dr. Peters, I really appreciate meeting you today. It's been so much fun talking with you. And I just thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed my time and uh, appreciate the invitation. It's been great to hang out with you and, and to talk. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.